G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. I hope you enjoy the ride. Nineteen ninety-three, Chapter Fifteen, Bolivia. You'd think after ten weeks of exploring South America, I'd have had my fill of spectacular scenery, but no. And Bolivia somehow kept up the cracking pace set by Peru, Ecuador, and Colombia. First up in this leg of the journey came Lake Titicaca. Brilliant sunshine, zero pollution and the crystal air at 4,000 metres certainly does wonders for colours. Deep blue lake, bright blue sky, and the yellows, greens and fawns of the often terraced farmland. Combine that with the near total silence of two windless days around the Isla del Sol, which we reached via a little town called Copacabana, then a little boat from the Yampupata Peninsula, and you've got Yauza. From there, on October 15th, we crossed the Strait of Tequina by ferry and bussed the hundred or so k's to the capital city, La Paz. It seems you've arrived in La Paz when you reach El Alto, the modern extension of the city built on the high plateau. Twenty minutes later, the real La Paz comes as a shock when the road disappears off a dizzying cliff at the edge of El Alto and you find the real city lying far beneath you, spread across a broad, bowl-shaped valley. Snow-capped mountains rise in the not-too-distance beyond the city to complete yet another scenic feast. Quite a moment. We found tidy, cheap rooms at the Yumacocha Hotel, met up with Tessa and Sonara, who we'd last seen in Cusco, Peru, and got in trouble twice for talking too loud after lights out. The next day, we said goodbye to Tony and Shonda, our trekking partners on the Inca Trail, who were returning home to Dubbo, Australia, and we learnt to adapt to the Bolivian way of doing things. It reminded me of Ecuador. All the restaurants recommended by the Lonely Planet guidebook had disappeared. Possibly they'd moved without giving notice of their new address, which is what the camping equipment shop had done. When, by chance, we found it where it wasn't meant to be, it was closed but a cardboard sign on the locked door promised it was open from 8 to 12 on Saturdays. But when we went back on Saturday morning, it wasn't. And when you finally found a restaurant that was open for business and clean enough to risk eating in, the waiters and cooks regarded customers as a nuisance. You couldn't get a hamburger without tomato because the cook couldn't be bothered not putting tomato on your burger. But it was no problem if you wanted a burger without onion. Go figure. And paying for your meal, or in fact anything, involved at least three separate transactions. These often led to a fourth stage in the process when you had to jog down the street to buy a lolly worth less than a cent to split a paper note that was worth less than ten cents because only exact payment was accepted at the place you started. Outstanding entertainment. On the other hand, the man who taxied us in his rickety transit van to the jump-off point for the Choro Inca Trail was extremely helpful, though we didn't realise it at the time. He dropped us off at what he said was La Cumbre, the summit, and pointed to a barely marked track that disappeared over the edge of a cliff. 
By now, we had so little faith in Bolivian efficiency that it was hard to accept that the driver's directions could be trusted. Mist clouds whipped up from the invisible valley below, and at 4,700 metres altitude, it was icy cold. Having other passengers to attend to back in town, the taxi driver left us alone with our thoughts, 60 k's from anywhere. A few long minutes later, spawning from the mist, came an ancient man, bent nearly double with a sheaf of dry sticks tied to his back, a bit like the old bloke in the picture frame on the front cover of Led Zeppelin IV. "'Si, si, sendoro choro,' he said, signalling the way he'd come, and he told us in slow Spanish to look for a big pile of rocks a little way further through the mist that marked the only safe path down the cliff." Then, with reptilian hands, he reached into the pocket of his ragged jacket and pulled out a handful of coca leaves and a small chunk of charcoal. He showed us how to chew a few of the leaves to pulp, then add a little corner of the charcoal to unlock the coca's full potential. I reckoned he was taking the piss, but Dave was sure he'd read something about this in a book, so we all gave it a crack. I'm not sure if it had any effect, but it sure as hell was funny seeing the black dribble running down our chins so maybe it did. And while this hilarity went down, the mist clouds thinned, and we caught glimpses of where the path was going to take us. Bloody magnificent. We soon found the big pile of rocks the old man had promised, and began our descent through the snow line and scree. Suddenly, we were walking on flagstone paving and stairs, built by the Inca half a millennium before. We climbed down 2,000 metres over the next few hours, singing songs and telling stories as the misty rain and blinding sun played tag. After passing some ruined Inca structures, we entered a lush river valley where llamas romped and had sexual intercourse with each other as the 12-year-old shepherd boy, armed with a wooden stick, lost all control of his flock. In the late afternoon, the wind dropped and the clouds cleared. In the golden light of the last hour before dark, we found a flat, smooth patch of grass between glacier-strewn boulders and set up camp. Now, while we're cooking dinner, I'll introduce our crew. Dave and Paul are from Sydney, Australia. Monica and Patrick are from Frankfurt, Germany. The five of us had walked the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu together a fortnight before. Then there's Tessa from South Africa, who I'd met six weeks earlier in Colombia, then re-met in Cusco by chance after walking the trail. And Sonara, another Sydney cider, who'd trekked to Machu Picchu with Tessa a few days before we did. Now then, find a seat beside us on this crash mat, and let's tuck in. Once dinner had been demolished, and the washing up done with water from the nearby stream, we celebrated one of the best days imaginable, with poetry and music beneath the stars. It was the perfect setting for Dave's epic recital of Clancy of the Overflow, one of Australia's great anthems. Just in case there are one or two readers and listeners who don't know, Clancy was written by Banjo Patterson about life in Australia in the late 1800s, and it's one of the greatest poems ever written. Yes, I know all you T.S. Eliot fans will poo-poo Patterson because he's a folk poet, but how many poems hit as many truths and emotional chords as this one? Another Patterson classic, The Man from Snowy River, features when we get to Chile. Anyways, I tried, I really did, not to quote from the poem, 
but I failed. So here are the first two stanzas, some of my favourite lines of verse. I had written him a letter, which I had, for want of better knowledge, sent to where I met him down the Lachlan years ago. He was shearing when I knew him, so I sent the letter to him, just on spec, addressed as follows, Clancy, of the overflow. And an answer came directed, in a writing unexpected, and I think the same was written in a thumbnail tipped in tar. "'Twas his shearing mate who wrote it, and verbatim I will quote it. "'Clancy's gone to Queensland droving, and we don't know where he are.'" "'Oh well, in for a penny, in for an Ezra pound. "'Now I've got started, I'd better go on.'" The narrator of the poem is trapped in his soulless city job, where he is sitting in a dingy little office where a stingy ray of sunlight struggles through the houses tall, and the fetid air and gritty of the dusty, dirty city through the open window floating spreads its foulness over all. Meanwhile, the narrator's friend Clancy has escaped the city to work as a drover in the free, open countryside, where the bush has friends who meet him and their kindly voices greet him in the murmur of the breezes and the river on its bars, and he sees the vision splendid of the sunlit plains extended, and at night the wondrous glory of the everlasting stars. Well, as you can imagine, there's no better place to hear this poem than round a campfire in the wilderness, and all us Aussies got a bit homesick and emotional. German and South African chins might even have wobbled a bit too, such was Dave's great delivery. And while we're on the subject of culture and history, the Choro Trail on which we were camped is just one of thousands built by the Incas across their vast empire. Until it was destroyed by the Spanish conquistadores in the 1500s, it stretched from the Pacific coast to the High Andes for over 3,000 kilometres north to south. The trail to Machu Picchu is the most famous, but there are many others you can walk without seeing another tourist. And it was only a hundred years or so ago that the Machu Picchu complex was discovered in the High Andean jungle. There's no doubt other trails and awesome Inca structures are still out there in the Misty Mountains, undiscovered. Our second day on the trail began with rain, but it cleared by the time we were too hungry to put off breakfast any longer. A wash in the stream's ice water brought us into the world with a start. Then a breakfast of porridge with nuts and cinnamon and a metal cup of instant coffee was conjured on our gas stoves. After taking down our tents and packing our bags, we trekked further and lower into the valley. After half an hour, the rain returned and we slipped on the steep Inca stone steps and wooden footbridges suspended across ever-deeper streams toward our next campsite near Choro village. A simple hut, perhaps a chicken pen, gave us some protection from the rain and cold while we cooked dinner. Sonaro's marshmallows toasted on the blue-orange gas stove flame were a highlight as we shared more stories and songs. Misty morning rain gave us the excuse for another lazy lie-in on day three. But as we made a steep two-hour climb through a butterfly-filled forest, the sun cleared the last of the clouds away. Once we emerged from the trees onto a trail cut halfway up a steep river valley slope, it was t-shirt weather. In another hour or so, we came to Casa Sandiani, where Tamiji Hanamura, an eccentric Japanese man traumatised by his experiences in World War II, had withdrawn from Japan 
to build a solitary home in deepest South America 40 years before. Lunch was tinned sardines and biscuits by a stream, and at nightfall we found a campsite where a couple of beers shared between us put us to sleep within minutes. The next morning, we walked the last of that section of the trail to Chairo village, where we found a simple lunch accompanied by Winston the dog. Winston was someone's pet, not part of the lunch. An hour or so later, an open-topped truck with a cargo of three dozen joyous Bolivians rumbled into Chairo on its way to La Paz. The driver offered to wedge us on board and take us to the turn-off to Coroico, where we planned to find accommodation that night. Having trekked 50 or so pretty hilly kilometres in the last three days, most of us jumped at the invitation. But Dave decided he'd rather walk the last 10 k's instead of enduring the human crush and the risk of disaster if the truck slipped off the road or even braked suddenly. And for good reason too. For this region stands unrivalled as the road fatality capital of Bolivia and probably South America. The most direct route back to the capital, La Paz, is officially named Estrada da Morte, which means death road in English. And yes, you can check this on Google Maps. Its name honours the two to three hundred people who die each year while travelling on it. Yes, that's two to three hundred each year. Death Road is optimistically cut into a series of near-vertical, waterfall-laced cliffs that regularly collapse into the valley or onto the road. Either way, it's fatal. It isn't wide enough for two cars to pass, but that doesn't deter Bolivian drivers, even on the hundred blind corners. And there are no barriers to protect cars from sliding on the ever-present mud and scree over the horrifying cliff edges. It's the apotheosis and I think that's the first time I've put that word in a sentence, of all the mountain roads I travelled in 1993. And somehow, since those days, it's become a tourist attraction, with people coming from all corners of the world to experience it. Go figure. That's one South American adventure I'm happy to have missed, because I think we travelled on a slower, less direct route when we returned to La Paz by bus a few days later. Anyways, we're back live, End of Herodotian digression. We survived the half-hour ride in the crowded open truck to the Coroico turn-off. There we waited another half-hour for a bus to take us the last few kilometres into town. We found Coroico absolutely blazing. By a miracle, our visit coincided with the town's annual Fiesta of the Virgin Mary. And by another miracle, we found rooms to rent at Hostel Cori, Lonely Planet's most recommended pension. Even while we showered and changed in our rooms, we could hear the riotous fiesta come drifting up the hill from a few hundred metres beneath us. But that didn't stop us from catching up on some of the sleep we missed while walking the trail. 
At dark, we walked stiffly down the narrow street to the town square, where we found marching bands, psychedelically costumed marches and dancers, and a scattering of older locals demonstrating how to be pissed without being an idiot. Somehow, the town's slippery cobbled streets improved everyone's dancing. We parked up on a corner of the main square and teamed half a dozen variations of great street food with a few long necks of the Bolivian beer that was sponsoring the Virgin Mary's festival. Happy days indeed. We woke late the next morning to gentle rainfall and the music hubbub of the fiesta still drifting sleepily up the hill through the trees and our windows. When the sun came out, we wandered down for lunch. Just as we arrived in the town square, the Virgin Mary made her entrance, standing stiffly atop a converted dining table being carried by six well-dressed men. She did well to keep the baby Jesus tucked safely against her shoulder while being lowered under advertisements for the sponsor's beer that were slung high across the streets. The fiesta frenzy continued, mostly without us, through the afternoon and into the night. On October 22nd, we returned to La Paz, avoiding, I think, Death Road. We tried a different hotel to the one we'd first stayed in, but still got in trouble for talking and laughing too much after lights out. We found new restaurants with new rude waiters, and we farewelled Dave, who was heading south to Patagonia, and Paul, Patrick and Monica, who were returning home. Tessa, Sonara and I spent our last day in La Paz connecting breakfast, lunch and dinner with coffee, beers and card games in El Lobo restaurant. The next day we went to catch the train that used to run 400 kilometres across the otherworldly scenic Altiplano, which means high plateau, to Arica on the far north coast of Chile. It's one of the world's highest railways reaching 4,200 metres and it features some of the steepest gradients in railway history, with several sections needing cogwheels beneath the carriage to physically claw either up or down the slopes. It was built in 1913 by indentured labourers imported from Paraguay, most of whom were press-ganged into service with false promises of opportunity by a massively wealthy American railway company. Thousands of these workers died from accidents, disease and exposure their unmarked graves, yet another invisible monument to globalisation. Harumph. The government of Chile paid for the railway as compensation for taking all of Bolivia's coastline after winning the ironically named War of the Pacific, which began in the 1890s. This decade-long war was fought largely over nitrates, the main components of fertilisers and explosives. Chile defeated both Peru and Bolivia to take possession of these nitrates just in time to make a fortune selling them to European governments who needed them to build millions of bombs with which to kill millions of soldiers during World War I. Head in hands emoji. Just a few years after we passed through, the train service ended due to financial mismanagement, who'd have thought, and maintenance issues caused by landslips and floods. Despite recent efforts by the Chilean government to resurrect the route, these days it's only open to a few freight trains each month, and they don't take passengers as cargo. Okay, enough of the history, geography and social studies lesson. Let's get back to 1993. Sonara, Tessa and I bought tickets the day before departure and were told to be at the La Paz railway station by 8 in the morning without fail. But, no surprises, 
the train didn't arrive till nine. And when it did, it wasn't a train. Just a single combined diesel engine and carriage, sort of like a tram, that the locals called a ferrobus. The forty or so passengers and their luggage were loaded fairly efficiently. Then we sat at the platform going nowhere for two frustrating hours. At last we got started, and just departing downtown La Paz was an adventure, as the track rumbled and snaked through the dirty thoroughfares and marketplaces of the rough suburbs that had grown up around it. All shapes of animal and human, often in herds, made an art form out of avoiding being crushed to death by shifting a millimetre away from the rails at the last possible second, often with their backs turned. The abject poverty of the poorest South Americans was again on stark display. From the suburbs, the ferrobus climbed uphill through a eucalyptus forest where clumps of corrugated iron-roofed shanties still clung to the tracks. We passed a school where the morning's flag-waving lessons were in full swing. We surprised a man and a single sheep, well I hope it was single, in a short dark tunnel. Then we passed what seemed to be an Inca wall holding up half a hill. Finally we emerged onto the Altiplano with magnificent views of La Paz far below. In the clear midday sky, Ilimani, at nearly 6,500 metres, soared above the chain of mountains that makes La Paz's airport one of the most dangerous in the world. On the Altiplano, we pass occasional squalid shanty towns wedged against the railway tracks. Expressionless, desperately poor people stare blankly at the ferrobus wheels as we pass. But at last we roll across a peaceful scrub-covered plain where it seems we've escaped the clutches of the city. Ten minutes later, at the next small town, we're suddenly engulfed by a wild riot. Hundreds of furious men hurl abuse and rocks at the ferrobus, while helmeted riot police with tear gas launchers fight the mob back from the tracks. We learn from one of the passengers that the ferrobus is undermining a workers' strike or something. Two weeks before, the protesters had knocked the ferrobus from its tracks. It takes ten minutes to inch through the mayhem and return to the open altiplano, where the soil and rocks grow redder. For the next 20 k's or so, we're accompanied by a small diesel-powered wagon that runs ahead of us on the rails, presumably to check for booby traps designed to derail the ferrobus again. The next tiny mud-brick village is strangely daubed with bright blue paint. The next is derelict and deserted. Then we cross a huge, bone-dry river valley. Even on the straight stretches of track, we never go more than 40 k's an hour. It's already clear there's no way we'll arrive at Arica on the Chilean coast by 6pm as advertised. We'll be lucky to make it there by midnight. And it dawns on me that it's going to be dark when we make the 3,000 metre descent from the Altiplano to the ocean, robbing us of the views we've come to see. Not happy, Jan. At every lurch in the track there's a symphony of falling metal trays and other cooking equipment as what might have been lunch, but now might be dinner, is incompetently prepared. The menu is some sort of meat fried in oil, an impractical choice of cooking method, considering the violent sways and jolts that accompany this section of the track. It sounds revolting on paper, and it smelled worse when it was being cooked, but having expected to be an areca for dinner, we haven't brought enough food and have no choice but to buy it at massive expense. 
when the much-resented dinner finally arrives, it's inedible. The oil-sodden, leather-like meat can't be cut with the cutlery provided, and the train's movement means there's a constant losing battle to keep the metal plate and tray from sliding off your lap onto the floor. The Ferrobus driver has served his dinner at the same time as the passengers. He's had more practice at balancing the metal tray on his lap and gets most of the food into his mouth okay. But he slows the train to a crawl for the hour it takes him to do so. Once the food's been cooked, served and spread across the floor, it's time for the in-flight entertainment, shown on a tiny TV screen hanging from the ceiling at the front of the cabin. It's a scratchy video of some sort of hyper-violent sexual gore-fest. What the... We try not to watch, but the small children on board don't seem to be at all disturbed by it. In the last hour of daylight, we pass tall, light-green, phallic cacti, and a river flowing back towards La Paz, so it seems we're yet to reach the highest point of our journey. Apparently wild, sheep throw themselves against vertical rock faces and or each other as we pass. Tiny yellow birds splash from near our wheels. In what must be close to the absolute middle of nowhere, an ancient man on an even older bike waits for the driver to honk at him twice before staggering off the rails. I suppose this track must be used as a road by people who can't afford the ferrobus, but heaven knows where they're going and why. Just when it seems we'll never see another landform again, a series of snow-capped peaks emerge on the horizon. The soil has turned from red to grey, and the sky seems to have climbed even higher. Now the soil's turned nearly white. Is it salt or snow? As we pass through a scrapyard of rusting broken machinery, teamed with plastic and paper rubbish blowing in the breeze, I realise we've arrived at the border with Chile. In the very last light of dusk, I take a photo of the tracks stretching west, towards the views I won't see. There's a half-hour stop while we get our passports stamped and our bags searched. I'm busting for the loo after six hours of avoiding the Ferrobus's filthy toilet. But the toilet in a tin shed at the border hasn't been cleaned since the War of the Pacific, so I sneak out into the cold, dark Altiplano to relieve myself behind the highest patch of low scrub I can find. I rest my few borrowed sheets of toilet paper on the ground while I assume the necessary position. But at the moment they're needed, a sudden gust of wind snatches them away. So I celebrate my last minutes in Bolivia by chasing toilet paper across the desert with my pants round my ankles. In the next chapter of 1993, we're off to the Chilean seaside and the lunar landscapes of the Atacama Desert. I hope you come along for the ride. If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at the We're Only Here Once Instagram page. Search for James W underscore W-O-H-O at Instagram, or there's a link in the show notes. You can find the text of the stories, as well as the photos, at jameswiley.com. The music you've been listening to is written by me and played by me and my band, The Nomads. Big love and thanks to my family and friends, without whom this wouldn't exist. 
and a big shout out to the good doctor, Maddie George, who covered me at work so I could redo this episode after I pressed the wrong button. And if you want to make a podcast, look up Rod Mori at Sydney Podcast Studios. Thanks for dropping in. See ya.